Hello and welcome to the Michael Mamas Show. I'm your host, Michael Mamas, and we're coming to you from Mount Soma, home of the Sri Sameshwara Temple in the mountains of Western North Carolina. Uh, today's topic, uh, the ancient secret underlying motivations. It's, it's a very interesting topic and it's you can approach it from so many different angles, but I was thinking even just this morning about, you know, there's that whole thing with uh, uh, gods and the asuras, the demons, if you will, that were uh, doing a tug of war uh, over the ocean of being. And so it churned the ocean, you know, pulling back and forth like that. And, and as the ocean churned, what eventually came out of it was a nectar, the nectar of immortality, the nectar of perfection, if you will. And um, I just... It, it, that so fit into kind of the theme, the overall theme of this podcast. Um, there are four different components here we could talk about. First, there's the establishment. But then there's ageless wisdom. You know, like the eternal knowledge, the bedrock, the, the knowledge we don't want to mess with. Um, and so it's difficult to really say, is this just an establishment that has become deeply entrenched in, and then you get into, well, you can do it in any arena. You could do it into the arena of the values of a particular family, a particular home, and that tradition, that establishment in that regard, you could do it, uh, uh, as, as then a source of ancient wisdom. This is something that we've learned through the ages, how to live. Cultures cultivate the awareness of the people. And if a culture is healthy, it cultures good values into the people. If a culture is unhealthy, it cultivates an indoctrination, you know, uh, cultivates distortion. And so, of course, if you, from one side, if you look at whatever's going on in the world, you might say, oh, well, that's good. That's wisdom. Uh, from another side, you look at the same thing. You say, oh, that's indoctrination. That's uh, uh, the swamp is the word they sometimes use with respect to the federal government. You know, it's just all corruption. And and uh, I talked about that in a previous podcast when I did I referenced it. It's in my notes from the previous podcast, if you want to take a look. That quote from Tulsi uh, Gabbard, she, uh, she's uh, from Hawaii or from Samoa, like that. And uh, uh, I don't know, she put it very well about how that the uh, establishment is so entrenched uh, and so um, fanatical, really, in, in their perspectives. And and, and so what is it, ageist wisdom or is it a corrupt establishment, you know? And then on the other side, we have uh, uh, what we could look at as uh, an evolutionary process, a, a rebellion. Of course, the establishment looks at, you know, the new ideas, the, the, the new approach as a rebellion. Uh, but those being rebellious say, oh, no, this is the evolution of humanity, you know? And uh, uh, 
Well, you can look at it like Democrats and Republicans. The, the Republicans would be looking at the Democrats and saying that they're, they're uh, we need to rebel. We need an evolution. The whole thing is terrible. The, the, uh, uh, it's an establishment. It's a bureaucracy. And, uh, uh, but it's not just about politics. It's not just about a family dynamic. It's, it's the whole way the world functions. It's that uh, uh, churning ocean, the tug of war between the divinity that dwells within every individual and also the Rakshasa value, the Ashura value, the uh, uh, aspect of a person's psyche that's not in harmony with nature, not in harmony with natural law. And of course, whichever side is the individual aligns with, be it the Rakshasa value or being a the divinity value, they think it's the truth. They think it's their divinity value. You know, it's only in uh, uh, Hollywood movies that the bad guy really thinks himself as a bad guy. Uh, they justify one way or another what they're doing. Uh, as I've said, you can justify anything with the intellect and people do, you know. So it's, it's this quagmire uh, of confusion, you know. And uh, um, you even see it, and I actually posted the reference. If you go to YouTube, if you're interested, you can go to YouTube and type in what I have uh, written. Where is that in my uh, the notes for this podcast? If you type in uh, Webb Telescope's discovery of galaxies that shatter the Big Bang Theory. Uh, to be honest, I think that, you know, we the way we explain that in previous podcasts is a better explanation easier to understand than uh, in that YouTube thing, but I, I posted it anyway because first I had some cool pictures, but uh, also the last minute or two, it talks about the establishment of scientists, astronomers, and how they're kind of trying to not talk about it or block it, the, the information of the web that blows the Big Bang Theory out of, out of the water, which is something that they've believed in, you know, and uh, I don't know. To me, it's amazing that it's not just in the uh, arena of politics or personal opinions and things, even in, in the arena of science, uh, when the evidence is so clear cut, the facts are so there. Uh, the Big Bang Theory can't be right, you know, uh, uh, but it's just so what we're talking about here is we're talking about the nature of the human psyche. It's how we function. It's how we think. We become so um, identified with a perspective. Uh, Maharishi Patanjali in his Yoga Sutras and that talked about um, the samskaras, the storehouse of impressions on the mind, on the chit. And uh, then they talked about the notion of no mind. What does no mind mean? No mind means when the, when the awareness is free of those profession, of those uh, impressions, that color our thinking, color our thoughts, determine, you know, what side of the fence we're on and how deeply that goes. And so in the state of no mind, there, there's no, the chit is being wiped clean. Uh, the idea being like when the storehouse in, in a less involved awareness, you could say, uh, impressions, they cut deeply into the chit. They're like etched in stone. And as a person evolves, the chit becomes more um, like clay. You know, you put an impression on the clay and it can be rubbed out. It takes some work, but it still can be rubbed out. 
eventually it becomes more like a gelatin. You know, the impression is there, but it kind of goes away almost by itself. Uh, a little later, it becomes uh, like water and then eventually like air. So the chit ceases to exist. And that's, and that, see, the mind is in the, the way they're defined here. The mind is composed of the chit, you see? So uh, uh, what happens when that's wiped clean? Well, then our awareness, our consciousness is functioning in harmony with what? The underlying basis of existence, the unified field, the field of existence where consciousness, because what is, what is isness? What is the pure state of being? It's a state of pure consciousness. Consciousness, before it becomes identified with any notion of other, and it goes right into the nature of the manifestation of existence. Consciousness becomes conscious of itself, perceives it as other. Duality is born. Consciousness becomes where those two things, a third thing is born. And all of that has a, a process of knowing. That's Rishi Devata Chandas, knower known process of knowing, you know. And and uh, uh, but that dynamic when it takes place within uh, the absolute, what does that mean? That means in a place where there is no loss of identity, consciousness perceives itself as other, but doesn't lose itself to the notion of other. There's no thingness. It's not about things over there. There's your pure oneness, uh, pure isness, pure consciousness. But in it, that's why we call that the absolute, whereas you have the field of relativity, the world we live in. It's built out of the notion of other. But there is no other. It's part of illusion. It's it's Maya. It's identity with the notion that there's other. Uh, so there's the self-interacting of pure consciousness, where the identity with the notion of other uh, it doesn't exist, but nevertheless it's lively and self-interacting. That's what the Veda is. Uh, and then there's the arena where that dynamic is remembered. Uh, uh, which is memory, smriti, it's remembered, but nevertheless, it's not fully awake to. There's some uh, ignorance there, some identity with the notion of other, i.e. relativity. That's why they call it relativity, because it's relative to the thing out there. And, and so, and that is the arena uh, of the world that we're living in. But now you have this tug of war going on between that place at the depth of our being where we're one with everything, where we already know everything, our own true essence, our own divinity is that field of no thingness. And we're awake to that to some level. But, but then there's the other level where we're identified with ignorance, identified with um, distortion. And you could call that in the deepest sense of the word, you could call that the rakshasa value, you know? And so in that tug of war between our own deeper inner knowing at the depth of our being and the more superficial level of our being, which in this age of ignorance, we become more, we are more identified with and, and that rules. So it's the rakshasa value that rules. It's the distortion value that rules. And then we have the a war between people, all identified with their own perspective. But what happens 
that churns and it churns and it churns. And it culminates in the production of uh, a nectar of immortality, wisdom, knowledge. And, and that's what the ancient seers have talked about. We're at that point now in the churning process that's been going on for thousands of years in Kali Yuga, you know, and even before. Uh, 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 but that churning process is now going to culminate in the production of what they call the nectar of immortality. What is that? That is the time when a person becomes awake enough to that which lies beyond the notion of thingness, the, the arena of identity with superficiality. Uh, and that's called the golden age. That's when the time when we all live in harmony with nature. Of course, now everybody thinks that their identity is uh, what it means to live in harmony with nature. And everybody saw, and if everybody saw things the way they did, we, it would be an enlightened age. And that's, so the whole thing is all goofed up, you know, it's just not, it's just not the way it works, you know? Uh, and it's only natural. See, the thing is, we have a sense of, of right and, and a culture when the cult, the healthier the culture is, the more so that the, the laws of the land, the moral values of the land, they're all consistent, more consistent with natural law, with nature, you see? But then as the culture gets more and more, you know, you could say twisted or confused, then uh, what becomes conventional, what becomes widely accepted, what becomes the value system ceases to really base, be based on that deva value, that divinity value, and becomes more based on the rakshasa value, you know? Uh and then what happens when, when an identity becomes so strong and solid and, and overpowering in a, in a civilization, it creates a tension because the way people are functioning isn't in harmony with nature, isn't in harmony with their own true nature. And that tension builds up, builds up, builds up. And that's the age we're living in right now, just as the ancient rishis have said. We're in that age where the tension is so great, the craziness is so extreme that it's going to give. The pendulum is going to recoil back. It's like the rubber band stretches, stretches, stretches slowly, slowly, slowly. But when it's released, it shoots right back uh, like a rubber band. And, uh, and that's the time that's coming. But as that tension gets so great, the world seems just crazy as it does now, you know? So that's the thing. And I, I like this one quote. I don't know if I can pronounce this guy's name. Can you pronounce that? Anton D. Saint, whatever. He said, uh, it's in my notes. You can look it up. Yeah. It says, the thing that is important is the thing that is not seen. I, you know, that you can pick that up on different levels, but I, I, I thought it was a beautiful quote because the absolute isn't something tangible. It's, it's beyond thingness. You can't see it. You can't grab it. You can't taste it. You can't touch it. But nevertheless, it's that field of no thingness, pure isness, pure consciousness, out of which all things are born, you see? And that's really, so it's aligning with that arena of no thingness, of pure isness, Chaitanya value, you see? 
Uh, and then there's the, another word that sometimes is used in reference to that, which is a bhavati tam, which is, it's kind of like, bhavati tam is like a little more relativistic. It's like when, when that field of Chaitanya, that field of pure consciousness, that field of underlying intelligence and perfection, you could say, uh, that is the one thing that underlies all existence. When it starts to well up into relativity, its influence is there. So it's got like almost entirely absolute, but some hint, some expression of uh, divinity uh, uh, on a very deep level, you see. Um, and it's, it's kind of like you have the Shiva value and you have the Rudra value. The Shiva is that pure perfection, a field of nothingness, pure transcendentalistness, pure divinities, snow white, you see. Uh, that's why they say Shiva, the incarnation of that, the embodiment of that, dwells on a snow white mountaintop, you know. Uh, and, but then you have what's called the Rudra value. Rudra, sometimes they use the word interchangeably with Shiva, but there is a distinction in that Rudra is the value, the quality of Shiva when it wells up into relativity. But what happens is that all the field of identity, the field of ignorance, the field of oblivion, the field of negativity uh, uh, is purified out, is um, uh, the imperfections are, are released and purified away. Now, if you're from the perspective of your of one's identities, then when they look at the Shiva value, it's attacking their value system. It's attacking their identity. So they see uh, Shiva then as formidable, Rudra, you know? Uh, uh, and so the images, the uh, Murtis of Rudra can be very um, threatening as, if you look at them, but that's what it's about. Uh, it's divinity viewed from the perspective of that, the rakshasa value, if you will, you see. Um, there's an interesting uh, expression I heard, and I, I actually had to look it up to get a better feeling for it. It's called the star chamber. Scotty, had you ever heard of that? I'd never heard of the star chamber. No. Yeah, it's uh, it comes back around Henry VIII time when there was like a judicial system that had kind of like a uh, subsidiary or tangential, if you will, judicial system that was almost functioned like a vigil vigilante group. So whatever their values were, they could kind of impose upon society, uh, uh, even though it may not be completely consistent with the conventionality of the time. Uh, and see, it just fixed into this whole dynamic we're talking about because from one perspective, you could say, well, the star chamber is the um, deep state. And, the, you know, then you get into the whole political thing. Well, maybe they're the ones that are going after Trump, you know, and, and, and uh, getting this uh, search warrant for his house and all this. Of course, every, the other side of the thing would be, well, no, Trump and the group that he represented was the star chamber. And they were kind of, tr kind of trying to create this vigilante organization that was going against the establishment. But of course, then they would say, well, the establishment is corrupt. It's so deeply entrenched, like, like Tulsi Gabbard was saying. <laughs> so, so the whole thing, once you get into the field of relativity, it's all relative. And the only way that this is going to get straightened out is if we tap into that deeper level, that source of natural law, that 
those values that aren't inherent to our divinity, but those values that are inherent in our own true nature, that Chaitanya value that dwells at the depth of every individual is who and what we really are, even though in, the, in this age of ignorance, we tend to ignore that and become identified with uh, uh, certain more superficial values. And then the war of the worlds begins, you know. Uh, so the, the good news is that this transition is happening. And, uh, uh, but the difficulty is that, that feel where the tension is so huge, right? Before the rubber band twangs back can be formidable and frightening. Uh, I put in my notes this thing, what's going on in Russia, China, Ukraine, that whole complex. And uh, evidently, you know, Moscow now is having troubles. There's, there's a lot of conflict in the leadership. And uh, 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 so that in and of itself is a big problem. And then, of course, in the Ukraine, they're saying 70%. Did you know this, Scotty? 70% of the uh, equipment, the military equipment, the money and everything that's being sent to the Ukraine never gets to Ukraine. It yeah. gets tapped out through the black market and, you know, uh, and sold by private interests. Cause they say that Ukraine, the government doesn't really run Ukraine. It's kind of like this, this um, uh, private sector bureaucracy cap on top of it, you know? And then of course you get into the conspiracy theories of George Soros is a big player in that. And, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so that's going on. Then there's this nuclear power plant in, uh, what is it? It's in southeastern uh, Ukraine. I can't remember the name of it, but it's way more powerful than Chernobyl. And I guess evidently the Russians now have invaded and taken it over, if I understand it correctly. But there is a, a, a real global concern that if something goes wrong there and that thing gets blown up, it, it is way more powerful than even Chernobyl. And Chernobyl and the, the disaster could affect millions and the cloud that got created, particularly because of the direction the wind's blowing right now, would blow it right over Eastern Europe. So uh, it all goes on and on, you know. Um, uh, which is why. Oh, and then if you look at the whole thing, uh, Russia Russia doesn't have a really powerful infrastructure uh, going on right now with respect to oil and gas. And if they could even get it to Europe, but if they can't get it to Europe, people are going to starve. People are going to freeze to death. It's winter. Uh, uh, so there's a whole crisis going on that way. Famine could be the result of this whole mess. Because like I said, right from the beginning with this whole Ukraine thing, there is no good outcome. Uh, it's just how to what degree we can minimize the catastrophe that that whole thing is. Uh, also, the I just have to mention a few of these things. The strategic oil reserves is being depleted. Why is the gas price going down now? It's because they're tapping the strategic oil reserve, and so they're flooding our market with that gas and oil, which needs to be replenished because it's not – the strategic oil reserve isn't just about if there's a crisis, what do we do? Let's tap into it. It's, it's even perhaps some more about the idea that if we have a, a fully replenished strategic oil reserve, then other countries like, for example, Saudi Arabia can't turn screws on us as far as what they charge for oil. 
as much as they could if the strategic oil reserve is depleted because we have nowhere else to turn once the, as the strategic oil reserve gets more and more depleted. So tapping into the strategic oil reserve is it's much more um, threatening than uh, uh, people might realize. Uh, and so just, and I think, well, can, at least until the midterm elections, I think they're going to continue to tap into it just to keep oil prices down, you know, to get reelected, that whole thing. So there's all kinds of things going on in the field of relativity now. And it goes right back to, if you really want to take a look at the depth of the, the real essence of the matter, it goes right back to the uh, title of this um, podcast. And it's the idea of, is it establishment or is it wisdom? Is it rebellion or is it evolution? And the whole spinning world of contradictory, conflicting identities that are birthed out of the, nat- the very inherent nature of relativity, particularly when our identity with relativity surpasses our resting into the divinity of Chaitanya, our own true nature. I, was, I think I may have mentioned this in another podcast, but I was driving down the street and the little billboards that they put in, in front of these Baptist churches a lot of times are really great. And one of them just said, you know, Jesus is the answer to all our problems. And uh, on one level, you know, somebody might read that. And I think a lot of people do is why Christianity's kind of uh, waning in its popularity because they look at that. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. You know, Jesus, come on. But actually it makes perfect sense if we have more of a understanding of the, nature of existence and that is what is jesus he's the embodiment of he in other words he was an individual that was fully awake to his own true divine nature that source of natural law that source of infinite harmony intelligence that birthed and sustained the whole universe and so in that sense yes if we could all rest into that function more and more from that as opposed to our identities including our identities of what we think that is about and what it says and what its laws are you know, Democrats think they're living in harmony with divinity. Republicans think they're living in harmony with divinity. Uh, the deep state thinks it's living in harmony with divinity. The uh, 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 rebels think they're living in harmony with divinity, you know. And so uh, that just brings to mind that quote of Abraham Lincoln when somebody said, well, we're going to win the Civil War because God's on our side. And Lincoln said, I'm more concerned about me, us being on God's side than whether or not God is on our side, which it says it in a rather eloquent way, I think. All right, I guess that's it. Anything more, Scotty? No, it's just the, the big question is, is how do we get the masses to plug into? Oh, God, you're so, you're so right. And that's really, that's what we're all about. There is a technology. It's in the Vedic literature. How to go about doing that? It's building a unified field generator, uh, uh, which is what we're trying to, it's there. I'm gonna give a whole talk in uh, tomorrow, actually. Uh, a group of uh, people are coming uh, and uh, asked if I give a lecture. So I'm gonna do it. And I'm gonna talk about that history of Mount Soma, what inspired it, what it is, a little more in the detail of the whole thing. And uh, I think, I'm, I'm hoping to record it and then we'll post that next week is uh, in place of the podcast as the podcast for next week. 
Uh, and I think you probably enjoy that. That's been a fascinating journey. But the idea is, yeah, <laughs> if everybody was meditating, they dressed into their own divinity, they'd function from there, the world would be great. But people don't do it, you know. But if you build this unified field technology, this enlightened city technology, which is in the Veda, then it radiates that influence out. And, uh, uh, and in that sense, Jesus is the only way. You know, Chaitanya is the only way. <coughs> okay, I guess that's it for this week. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening.